This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. My name is Rob, and I also want to extend a welcome to you. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Pastor Craig is uh, not speaking this morning. He's actually preaching at Bethesda Gardens, which is an assisted living uh, center that we do a, a weekly service to. We have a team that goes out there every single Sunday, and he's going to be preaching over there on Legacy this morning, so you can be in, in prayer for him. Uh, as was already mentioned, we've been in a series called Everyday Gospel, Closing the Gap Between Sunday Faith and Daily Life. And so we've been talking about some, uh, some everyday life kind of things, things like sleeping, Things like leisure, things like food, things like money, things that we uh, experience and do every single day that sometimes we don't see the gospel in that. We don't see how God intersects that. And today uh, we are talking about eating, eating to the glory of God. Now there is nothing more ordinary, nothing more necessary, nothing more familiar than eating on a daily basis. Basis And because it's so ordinary and so everyday, we completely miss sometimes what God wants to communicate to us through our eating and our drinking. And our text today is 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a very hopeful verse because it says we're to live all of our lives to the glory of God. And very practically, Paul in 1 Corinthians says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do everything to the glory of God. So we're going to look at some scriptures here this morning. And my burden is to show from, from uh, several passages today that eating and drinking is a daily gift that we love God and love our neighbor with. And that's actually our, our structure of, of the message today. Eating is a daily gift. Eating is a way to love God. Eating is a way to love our neighbor. So with that, let's pray and ask God for his mercy and help today. Lord, as we look at several passages today, we ask that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to embrace whatever you want to show us. We surrender to you. We ask for your help. We ask for your mercy. And we ask that you would just visit us here today and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at the, uh, the first point of this. Eating is a daily gift, a daily gift. I did some research this week and discovered that the average American will spend 67 minutes a day eating and drinking. Does that sound low to you? Because it sounded low to me when I, I read that. Now, the cumulative effect is 32,000 average hours of eating and drinking beverages in your lifetime and uh, only 38 minutes prepping and cleaning up. Uh, both of those numbers sounded low to me. But uh, this is their, their data. Now, that is low across uh, the world. Every, nearly every country I could think of had more uh, time devoted to eating. Japan, China, India, Germany, Australia, France, tons of other countries all had way more time that they spent eating and drinking and, and prepping. 
arguably Americans spend more time or at least equal time being entertained uh, by watching other people eat or prep or cook food as they do eating food themselves since they, they watch TV over three hours a day on, on average. So get this. For the limited amount of time, 67 minutes or whatever, maybe it's more for you, maybe it's less uh, for you, consider the anxiety that surrounds those 67 minutes out of your day. Consider, I'm just, let me give you a sampling of some of the anxiety. Some of, some of these I experience regularly, some I don't, and there are many, many more that I uh, don't even have time to mention. Think about the anxiety of cost. What can I afford in terms of food? What's my, what's my budget in, in terms of groceries and restaurants? What can I afford to eat? Uh, think about the anxiety of preparation. Uh, what will I eat today? Uh, what will we eat this week? When will we cook meals this week? Uh, when it's time to eat or cook a meal, how do I make the meal? Or cook the meal. How, uh, how and when uh, will we go to the store? That's a regular question we ask at our house. When are we going to go to the store? Uh, think about the anxiety of when you actually sit down and, and enjoy your meal. Will I eat too much of this? Will I eat too little of this? For some of us, will I get sick from this? For all of us, in varying degrees... Will my body image suffer from this? Uh, is this a healthy snack or a not so healthy snack? And I've had to learn over the years that if it involves cartoon elves on the package, it's probably not a healthy snack, but it sure is a delicious snack. <laughs> Think about the social anxieties to eating food. Am I going to be judged by this if I eat this? Like, should I Instagram this or should I just keep this private? Am I a bad parent if I let my kids eat this? Uh, and more seriously, will my kids have enough food? Uh, or will my kids have enough of the right kinds of food? I mean, there's all kinds of tensions in the culture regarding food and food consumption and food production and what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. And there's, there's many, many, many more anxieties that I haven't listed. What is yours? What's your food anxiety? Maybe your beverage anxiety. I mean, when you really lock in on what you're anxious about when it comes to your 67 minutes a day, the words of Jesus seem so relevant. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And he goes on to say, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'm sure many of you have heard those words before. But consider the the current culture that we live in and how relevant that is. Consider the fact that that, that for a large uh, majority of the people that he taught that uh, principle to, and for many in the world today, the biggest question is, Will we eat today? Will there be anything to eat? Will we experience a meal today or will that be tomorrow? And he says, don't go running around anxious about those kinds of things because you have a heavenly father who knows what you need. Seek him and seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. And then he teaches the exact same model of prayer. The disciples are are asking Jesus, how do we pray? He says essentially the same thing. When you approach God, approach him as father. And he says, approach him as a father in heaven that has access to all things and pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's, it's putting God at the center of the anxiety. Whatever the anxiety is, God, now you are at the center. And not just God vaguely, but our Father specifically. A Father loves and cares for his children. And we're going to put the Father at the center of the anxiety. And then after you've prayed that, then ask him for whatever you need on a day-in, day-out basis. And he says it like this, give us this day our daily bread. Pray this way. Father, give us this day our daily bread. He says, tomorrow we'll have enough anxieties. And when you get to tomorrow, you'll pray the exact same thing. But today, say this. Father, this is a day I'm anxious about food in any number of ways. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, when the disciples heard him teach that, doubtless they remembered the story in the Old Testament when a heavenly father brought the people of God daily bread. Do you remember the story in Exodus 16 when after being really released out of captivity in Egypt and on their way to the promised land, miracle after miracle after miracle, the people of God have experienced and they, they get hungry and they doubt God. They start to grumble and complain. They tell Moses, we're going to die out here. Moses asks God for a miracle and God as a benevolent father provides a miracle to the people of God. And the miracle was bread from heaven. It was manna. And they woke up in the morning and there was, uh, there was literally bread. It was, it, just, it was like a flaky wafer that they picked up off the ground and they said it tasted like honey. And every single morning they would wake up and this bread would be there. And in Exodus 16, it says this, Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. In other words, all you can eat, enjoy the manna, don't leave any until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. (laughs) And Moses was angry with them. 
Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So God is providing a miracle every single morning. And the the principle of the miracle is God is teaching his people, I will provide for you tomorrow. The miracle is going to happen for you today, but I'm also going to be there for you tomorrow. And on the day before the Sabbath, another miracle would happen where they would gather twice as much and it wouldn't uh, stink the next day. So they would still rest on the Sabbath day. They wouldn't even go out collecting the manna. Now, if Harvey is reminding me of, of anything, and I'm sure it's teaching us a lot and it will in days ahead, it's that we are not ultimately in control of what food we have access to. At the beginning of the week, Houstonians and folks all over the Houston area had access to all kinds of grocery stores and hundreds of restaurants, maybe more restaurants per capita than any city in the United States. And by the end of the week, they had very little access and for many people, no access to food. And so it's a reminder, isn't it, that whatever we receive, whatever our budgets can afford, even if we want it to be different than we can afford, even if there's different kinds of foods we wish we could afford, we are not ultimately in control of the food that we have access to. And this is a wonderful place to really trust God and ask him for the daily miracle of provision and then to receive whatever he gives with gratefulness and thankfulness as the gift that it is. It's a daily gift from God, and we should say, thank you, God, for this daily gift. Thank you for for, for providing food. Thank you for the opportunity to go shopping, even though it's a very busy week. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to prep food. Thank you for anything and everything that we get to enjoy in terms of eating and drinking. And so eating is a daily daily gift that we need to cultivate gratitude for and thankfulness for. Uh, Secondly, eating is a way to love God, to actually return love back to God. Now, when we remember what was lost in the garden, interestingly, through eating forbidden food, do you remember the story? God gives them everything to eat. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't put the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the center, just this lush tree, and then everything else is just kind of a, a not-so-great tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was one among thousands of trees uh, that were bearing fruit that God says, eat and enjoy my bounty and uh, have a ball in the garden uh, that I've created for you. But... Uh, the devil tempted them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God commanded. I don't want you to know evil. I don't want you to know that. And I don't want you to experience that. And they are tricked and they listen to the serpent, to the devil. They eat it. And ever since then, we've had a problem in terms of food. And we see that when God gives the people of God the law in the Old Testament, we see what he's starting to restore back to his people. He commands the people to rest and feast one day a week. That made them very different from the entire culture. It wasn't just circumcision. He commands the people when they're anxious about providing for themselves and, you know, making sure that we're taken care of, he tells them to rest. He commands them to rest. Why? Because we're, we're driven 
And when we're anxious about something, we're driven all the more. And yet he tells them to rest one day a week. And when you rest, feast on that day. And on top of that, he gives them multiple feasts throughout the year that many of them were week-long feasts. Beginning with the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were five other sacred feasts that followed the annual calendar, which essentially was also their harvest and their, their food calendar, uh, their farming calendar. They were always kicked off with a sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, and then there would be a feast after that. That was seven a year. In addition to those sacred feasts, listen to this, there was also a new moon feast, and that was at the beginning of every lunar month. Uh, in addition to that, every seven years, they had a Sabbath year feast. So there's festivities throughout the year on the Sabbath year. And then every 50 years, there was a Jubilee feast. Okay, and then they would forgive each other's debts, and they would do all kinds of things during the Jubilee feast. So the people of God feasted all the time. Their calendar was as soon as they were finishing one feast, they were starting to prep and get ready for the next feast. And when they finished that one, they would prepare for the next feast. Now, the feasts were never intended to be an outward religious ceremony. But what do you think happened with the people of God year after year when they would obey God and do these feasts and go into the feast sort of half-heartedly, thinking it was a ceremony, thinking it was a show, for some, thinking maybe God needed food through all these sacrifices, uh, and then it just became a ceremony. Well, their hearts grew cold to God, and they began to miss the whole purpose of what the feast was about, which is about connecting with God. And so God sent prophets, and, and the prophets, God would say through the prophets, things like this. In Amos, he says, I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In Isaiah... God tells the people, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Like I can't, those things don't jive. Iniquity and a solemn assembly, a, a festival, a feast. Uh, when there's no repentance, no coming to me. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Now, why would God hate something that he commanded them to do? Well, the feasts were never about God's need for a ceremony. And by the way, this gathering on Sunday is not about God's need at all. God does not need ceremony. He does not need any showy display of religiosity from us. The feasts were about our deepest hungers. That only God can satisfy. That's why he said feast throughout the years and feast in these ways. 
God knows that we are physical people and we are spiritual people. And sometimes the best way to communicate to our spiritual side, our hearts, is through our physical side, our bodies. So it's no surprise that in Isaiah we hear words like this where God's calling his people back. And he says things like, come everyone who thirsts. Thirsts in what way? Physically? No, not just physically, but spiritually. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God calls us back to himself and he says, I'm like the feast. I'm telling you to have a feast because I'm wanting you to see what I'm like. Enjoy the feast, but enjoy the feast because you want me and you want to delight yourself in rich food food. Now, when Jesus comes, fully God and fully man, if we understand the importance of what feasting is all about, it's no surprise that his first miracle takes place at a feast, at a wedding feast, no less. And he stuns the guests by turning water into the sweetest wine they had ever tasted. Nearing the end of the party. This was like a week-long feast. And he turns water into wine. And that's the sign of the Messiah. Not just the miracle itself, but the ability to take something lame and make it beautiful and abundant and amazing. And then he goes on and he does amazing things with food. He multiplies bread for thousands on multiple occasions. Now, is it about the bread? Is it about the water and the wine? Well, no. Just like in the Old Testament, Jesus isn't just addressing physical hunger. He's addressing spiritual hunger. And we know this because the very same people that he he rebukes his disciples for not showing compassion because they were physically hungry and he multiplies bread for all of these people. To that same group of people, they approach him later on in in John chapter 6. And they said to him, "Uh, you know, Jesus, what sign do you perform that uh, we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're kind of challenging Jesus about this. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. The same Father that rained down the bread from heaven has given me to you as a gift to give you life. They don't understand. And they said, well, sir, give us this bread always. (laughs) They want this like endless supply of physical bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst Is anybody hungry today? 
You've tried a lot of different paths. You've tried a lot of different food. But your soul is still hungry and your soul is still thirsty. Listen, Jesus approaches you very gently today and he says, listen, I'm the bread of life. And if you'll humble yourself and come and sit down at the feast, you have nothing to fear and you have everything to gain in abundance of my presence. And I want to sit with you and I want to be a friend to you. If you'll sit at the table and enjoy the feast. Now, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we physically remember that Jesus is the bread of life who was broken for us. I mean, you can't not think about that whenever you're eating the bread and drinking the wine, the juice. And uh, we remember that he gave us life. And we look forward to the day that Jesus says will be a feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's this coming feast that Jesus told us we should be anticipating and working towards and excited about. I can't wait for that feast. That, I mean, if, if Jesus can turn water into wine in a second and transform um, pretty okay feast to something that was amazing, that was talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years. Imagine what he can do with 2,000 years as he's anticipating, and we should as well, this great marriage supper of the Lamb. So listen, every time we eat anything out of hunger or any time we eat anything out of delight, just pure enjoyment, and those aren't mutually exclusive, we're reminded that we have spiritual hunger and a spiritual desire that only God can satisfy. All right, why is this important for when I eat lunch today or when we do barbecue tomorrow or whenever? Okay, think about it this way. If feasting is not just eating a large meal at Thanksgiving before the Cowboys play, if it's more than that, if it's different than that, If feasting is enjoying God through enjoying the food he's provided, then there's a principle that can apply to all of our eating and all of our drinking. To eat and drink to the glory of God implies that we should feast, that we should truly enjoy food and drink for what it is. I know we're a busy culture. I know we're busy lives. I know sometimes we're just eating on the go. We're grabbing snacks. We're just going through the drive-thru or we're making quick meals on our way out. But, But to stop occasionally and pause and to truly consider what it is that we are eating and the miracle of how it came to us, how it came to, to, to us on our plates, whether, however that came, it's, it's a miracle and it's a provision of the Lord and just to enjoy it, to enjoy it, to enjoy food and to enjoy drink for what it is, is a way that we love God back. And it's, it's more than just being thankful. It's It's one thing to be thankful. It's another thing to enjoy what it is that we are receiving. To not villainize it, not to hate it, not to consider it the enemy of of my body image or the enemy of my body or whatever. The ability to enjoy it is also a gift that we should ask God for any time that we sit down and enjoy something. Consider, Consider Proverbs 24 when the writer says, we should eat honey For it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. 
I love that verse because I'm a big honey fan. Love honey. If anybody is, has uh, extra honey you want to give to me, I'll put it to good use at my house. Love honey. Uh, but the principle isn't just about honey. It's eat whatever God has provided for you, for it is good, and enjoy the flavors and the tastes. God's given us taste buds. Remember, it was God's idea to put honey in the manna, right? He could have just dropped the bread from heaven and it would have just provided them sustenance and energy and necessary calories to continue the work for that day. But that's not all that food's about. Food's about delighting in what God provides. And so he's the one that puts honey in there. And he says, if we get honey, if we get it in our lives, enjoy it. Enjoy the drippings of the honeycomb because they are sweet to your taste. We're supposed to enjoy the sweetness that comes to our bodies and and to to recognize God in all of that. Um, So enjoy food. For some of us, that, that is easier than others. And we should never take for granted that. We all enjoy food. Some of us have physical challenges that make the enjoyment of food difficult. And, uh, and so it should never be assumed that we are enjoying the food that we have. But we have asked, got to ask God to help us to enjoy food. Now, period, dot, dot, dot. Now, this obviously brings up a topic that touches all of us. What about enjoying food too much? What do we do if we do that? We enjoy food too much. I'm very qualified to talk about this. Very qualified. I agree oftentimes with Jim Gaffigan on this. He says, uh, he's a comedian, he's not a theologian. Okay. He says, there's an old Weight Watcher saying, nothing tastes as good as thin feels. I, for one, can think of a thousand things that taste better than thin feels. Many of them are two-word phrases that end with cheese. Cheddar cheese, blue cheese, grilled cheese. Even unsalted french fries taste better than thin feels. I can relate to that sentiment in terms of food because I love to eat when I'm happy and I love to eat when I'm stressed or anxious. I love to eat when I'm depressed. I love to eat when I am bored. I love to eat when I think I might be getting bored. Um, I love to eat all the time and it's, it seems I'm, uh, I love to eat all kinds of things. I, it's rare I find a food I don't enjoy. I, I think, well, if I'm not enjoying this, I can, uh, let me try it again, and, and maybe I'll start to start to enjoy it. So I, I enjoy food. That's, that's uh, by God's grace. That's, it's been a blessing in my life in that way. But, but food, just like all these topics that we've been talking about, like leisure, like work, like sleep, it's a wonderful gift that serves us until we give them control. As soon as we give food or anything else control, food can become a cruel master. I mean, a very, very hateful and cruel master. If we give food or drink the keys to the house, it'll make a mess and a wreck of things. So Proverbs, the same place that we see if you... if. You get honey, enjoy it, eat it. The drippings of the honey is so good. Enjoy every bit of it. Also says, if you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's very practical, right? Enjoy everything God's provided for you, but don't eat until you get sick or vomit. And so we've got to be, be careful here, especially in a land where we have, we have an abundance of food, right? All of us struggle probably with this. And this has nothing to do with metabolism. Uh, this has everything to do with, with heart. And so, uh, so this is a struggle. It's been an ongoing struggle in my life. And I, I believe it will probably be ongoing for the rest of my life. To enjoy food but not to abuse food. And, and what I've discovered in my life over the years is that when we try to make food do what only God can do, we cease enjoying it. We stop enjoying it. And we actually start abusing it sort of. Uh, so we can eat until we are sick. Or in some cases, we refuse to eat it because we're making it serve our God of body image. And all kinds of, of difficult eating disorders need to get untangled um, if that gets way down the road. And we're going to be talking about in the student ministry, by the way, eating, uh, eating and body image as well. So eat it. Enjoy. Enjoy it. But, but to eat to excess, obviously, there can be a problem with that. And we've got to recognize when we are, get help and ask God for mercy and grace for both of those things. Because it's a balance, isn't it? Enjoy, but don't, don't overdo it. So when we understand the feast, we understand when Jesus talks about fasting, why that, what is that? How, how do we think about that? Well, if feasting is enjoying God by enjoying food, fasting is enjoying God through the denial of that enjoyment for a time. And taking all that energy and all that physical hunger and, and pouring that uh, out on the Lord. Sam Storms, author and pastor, says it this way. Fasting is all about ingesting the word of God, the beauty of God, the presence of God, and the blessings of God. Fasting is all about spiritual gluttony. It is not a giving up of food or some activity for its own sake. It's about giving up food for Christ's sake. He'll say in other places that a way to think about fasting is, you know, I'm not going to eat food for a meal or a day or whatever it is, or I'm not going to participate in this activity for a season or a, a day, so that I can take my spiritual hunger and feast on the Lord. It's fasting is feasting, he'll say in other places. And I think that's really helpful. And that makes a lot of sense why Jesus would say, when you fast, don't go around gloomy. Don't go around, you know, face draught and kind of slipping it in that you're fasting uh, unnecessarily, that kind of thing. Don't draw attention to the fact that you're fasting and that you're, give, you're doing this great sacrifice because uh, there is no ultimate sacrifice. To go without food and to feast on God's presence, there's no sacrifice there, ultimately. Now, obviously, there's, it's, it's difficult, but it's meant to clear the head and help our hearts connect with the Lord. And it is very effective for that. Lastly, lastly... Um, Eating and drinking is a way to love our neighbors. It's a way to love our neighbors. Now, there's, there's an obvious way to love our neighbors through eating and drinking and a less so obvious. The more obvious way scripturally is to feed those around us who are hungry. And there are places all over the world to, we can give money to and, and we should and give resources to because hunger is a global issue. But, you know, hunger is also an issue on your street and in your neighborhood. There are people, even 
you know, next door neighbors who are living in, uh, you know, on the outside as, as like they're doing okay, but they might be going through some significant financial challenges, and sometimes the food budget is the first thing to go. And so consider the fact that there are people, you know, in our city, definitely people in Houston right now, who are hungry. And James 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, you know, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and you don't give them what's necessary for the body, what good is that? I mean, there is no, there is no good to that. That does not reflect the kingdom. Uh, we can't do everything, but we can do something, and we should respond in, in some way to those who are hungry around us. And we love our neighbors that way. But a less obvious one is how eating and drinking is the surprising ideal context for discipleship, for helping people follow Jesus, eating and drinking. In his book, A Meal with Jesus, which I'm going to quote extensively from here as we close, Tim Chester opens the book this way. How would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came, dot, 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 dot. There are three ways the New Testament completes this sentence. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He says the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. He says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So in Luke 2, when Jesus stands in front of all the Pharisees and says, I am the Messiah that's going to recover sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he goes on an eating campaign. In Luke 5, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 7, he's anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, he feeds 5,000 people dinner. In Luke 10, he eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, he urges people to invite the poor to their meals, not just their friend. And love this one. In Luke 19, he invites himself over to dinner with Zacchaeus. So he's getting a lot of uh, dinner invites. And in the case where he's not getting the invite, he just invites himself over to Zacchaeus. And uh, this gets him in a lot of hot water with the Pharisees. And it gets his disciples in a lot of hot water. They approach him in Luke 5.33, and they say the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. 
And, and that's why he got the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. You get that reputation when you're seen eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Tim Chester says it this way. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking. A lot of his time. He was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. He goes on to say it this way. If I pull down books on mission and church planting from my shelves, I can read about contextualization, evangelism matrices, postmodern apologetics, and cultural hermeneutics. I can look at diagrams that tell me how people can be converted or discover the steps required to plant a church. It all sounds impressive, cutting edge, and sophisticated. But this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Some people push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places where you don't feel comfortable. But it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up Christian community and reaching out on mission. You know, I read that book a few years ago, A Meal with Jesus. I encourage, it's a short read, but uh, I, I think it took me just a few hours to read it, and that's, I'm a slow reader. But I have never looked at meals the same after reading that book. And I would just encourage you to read A, a Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. Now, what if we took advantage of meals the way Jesus did? Think about the concentric circles in your life. And how sharing meals impact those. If you're married and you have kids, think about the long-term effect of unhurried mealtimes. Unhurried. Maybe can't happen every night, but it should happen a few times a week. Think about the people in this church. Many of our community groups eat together regularly because they've read this book and they've seen how powerful meals are. And it, it just builds friendships. It just builds love and connection among the group. And then there's many, many in the church that show hospitality and open up their homes. And there is some prep work that's required to that. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But friendships don't deepen any other way. Friendships deepen so quickly and exponentially and faster over time. And we just say, you know what, whatever the house looks like, it's just going to have to be the way it is. Come on in and share a meal with me and with our, with our family. Now, think about also the people who live in your neighborhood. Consider the fact that many who live right next door to you and me are lonely. And busy does not mean you're not lonely. And many are in need of friendship. And consider that all are going to go through something this year that is very difficult, 
if not tragic. And when they do, they will turn to a friend. Oftentimes a friend that they've shared a meal with. And a great question for us is would they turn to me? Have I shared a meal with them? Have I invited them to dinner or dessert? Imagine the long-term impact if we simply invited the people that we've met over for dinner. No other agenda, just dinner and connection. What ministry opportunities would open up over the next year if you did nothing but sought to be a friend by inviting them over for a meal? Now, this is messy, just like Tim Chester talks about in his book. It creates opportunities to offend or to, to be offended. But that's, that's what life is like in a world full of sinners. And there will be opportunities to uh, obey Paul where it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There will be opportunities to cross those bridges when we get to them. But what an impact can be made across the board if we were to open up our homes just like Jesus and truly enjoy food the way he's designed it. We're going to close in prayer. And why don't we all stand and we'll, we'll close this way. We're not going to sing or have a prayer time. But let's, I've talked about a number of things, eating gratefully, eating joyfully, uh, the struggle with eating to excess, um, opening up our homes, leveraging meals, leveraging food. There's a number of things that I've mentioned. Let's take a moment and let's invite the Lord to give us one step forward here, okay? Maybe for, one, maybe for you it's gratefulness. Maybe for you it's to truly enjoy it. Maybe for you it's to, to stop abusing it. Maybe for you it's getting help, admitting a need to a friend, somebody that you trust. And maybe for you, it's opening up your home. Let's, let's pray and just take a moment of silence and ask God to very clearly speak to us. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.